Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! You got it! Welcome back to The Ready State. Today we have an incredible guest, Dr. Mark Benden. He is an associate professor and department head for the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Texas A&M School of Public Health, where he also serves as the director of the Ergonomic Center. He's a legit professor and researcher. And if you follow Juliet and I, you know about our passion around trying to improve the environment of children, particularly at school, through our interventions of standing moving desks away from sedentary desks. This is how we originally became friends with Mark Benden. Mark Benden is the man behind some of the most significant research done around kids and uh, standing moving desks uh, that we have talked about a ton on stand-up kids, and you'll learn way more about in this podcast. He is an amazing dancer, little known fact. Um, I am thrilled. He has so many good stories, so many anecdotes. When you take around, the, the takeaway from this, I hope, is that you'll look at your environment in which you find yourself and your child and hopefully understand a little bit more of the bigger epidemiological impacts around the the sedentary culture. And like every guest this season on The Ready State, he offers quite a few practical takeaways. So have a listen. Thanks, you guys. Hey, crew. Really excited today. Back on The Ready State, we have... Department Head of Environmental Occupational Health at Texas A&M and Public Health. And also, he serves as the director of the Ergonomic Center there. This is Dr. Mark Benden. And if you've been around what Juliet and I have been working on in terms of what we think is our life's work, then you have run uh, through stand-up kids and, and reducing sedentary behavior in kids. And you have run into the one and only and fabulous Dr. Mark Benden. Thanks for joining us today, man. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Well, Okay. You're here because we ran into each other when we started our, we were in this nascent phase of of sort of realizing that we had spent some time uh, at the kind of population health at the big corporations. We were saying, hey, look, the world has changed underneath us. Suddenly we're not doing the things that made us human. And the, the analogy that we've been using for a, long, for a while now, we borrowed from our friend Katie Bowman, that if you take an orca and you put it in captivity, you change its behavior that fin eventually starts to fold over because it's not loaded, right? It's not being challenged. It becomes, so the fin becomes weak and then you change the fundamental behavior of the orca. And so you end up with this sort of deformation of the thing that's like, that probably orcas are so, so proud about their, their fins, right? So absolutely, yeah. we <laughs> realized that we weren't thinking about this around our kids. We started stand up kids trying, and then, you can't be into this space and look at the sedentary research and not run into you. So that's how we all became friends. And uh, we're really excited to have you talking today about the trends that you're seeing, what you're doing, and where you think we could be going to improve the environmental population health of our children. And just to oh, go back in, in time to start at, the, start at the beginning, can you just uh, start by telling us a little bit about how you got into researching sedentaryism is that a word and sedentary lifestyles and just you know give give us a back give us sure. a backstory it's, it's your show it's definitely a word <laughs> uh yeah I, I guess go back to around 2000 and i had been working primarily with adults and trying to get you know at that point hey i think we're we're starting to see some trends here, right? I mean, we were really seeing the obesity trends on the adult side. Things were picking up on the children, but the, the upper half of the hockey stick that we've seen in the, in the kids the last 10 years was just starting. Um, so it was raising some alarms, but we were really finding this uh, workplace uh, situation that we'd never seen before. So for instance, in the occupational injuries at the time, it was really commonplace for professionals to not worry much about the age of somebody who was getting injured. And the reason for that was that the people who mostly got hurt were the 30 day wonders. You know, that was somebody who didn't know what they were doing. They got injured because they were doing something really crazy and dumb, or it was on the other end, right? They were a lot older, a lot older, and they were basically suffering from some degradation related to age. Um, so what was blowing our mind at the time was we started having people in their twenties, raising their hand and reporting, you know, occupational injuries and illnesses. It really caught us off guard. And so it slowly began this transition. And if you look at the statistics today, most of the larger corporations in our country, the demographics of age of who's 
getting hurt? Who's reporting, you know, work-related musculoskeletal disorders, problems that require uh, medical treatments? It's the younger people in the workforce. And that is just not normative. Um, so how did we get to that point where the, the people who are supposed to be the, the really young healthies in our work population are more likely to be injured? Uh, it's it's really a factor of, of of what's going on starting as you guys have pointed out when they're really young. It's it's that entering school age. I mean, at the point we become ambulatory, that that is really where we're starting to see shifts in the the way that the human functions in our society compared to say 40, 50, 60 years ago. So it's, it's a big difference. When you when you take this view about sort of the way the human being maybe has traditionally operated or or the inputs that we would traditionally see for just an average person, not, not trying to romanticize cave persons, right? That's, that was no way to live. Right. right? I I like, I like whole foods, but one of the things that you said, I think has really stuck with me is you said, Hey, we, we have celebrated children taking their first steps and it's about getting outside and playing and, and, and activity and, and think about how we raise kids. And all of a sudden you hit first grade even a little bit in kindergarten and that narrative 180s and suddenly yes, it, it is all about a complete 180 in sort of our expectations and the behavior of the human being. Would you elaborate a little bit on what you mean? Yeah. So the acts of daily living, this, this, this part of our, our physical being that we used to be so engaged with, especially our core um, throughout the course of the day, we, we just, we had to move. It was required to get through the day. And so, you know, when I, when I look at my uh, wife's 98-year-old grandmother, she's still, you know, able to function and do all of her normal acts of daily living. I think she takes one half of some blood pressure pill or something, but she's just tearing it up. And the reason she's doing that at 98 is because she was a member of a gym for 50 years, right? Oh, wait, no, she wasn't. Oh, it's because of the organized sports or after school program she was in. Oh, wait, she she was never in one of those. Oh, hold on. It's got to be her diet. Nope. I mean, if you if you were really a, a diet person, you probably wouldn't get really thrilled about her diet. Well, hold on. How is it? Po- She's never not been in motion. She's always been moving. Now, did she was she a marathoner? Was she a sprinter? Right. Was she an Olympic athlete? Nope. Oh, hold on a second. What's going on here? She was always in motion. She was built for movement. She was born to move. She started out life moving. And let me tell you, man, she's going to go out moving. She is still kicking. She's still ambulating. She's still moving around. It's it's really, we have lost that part of our daily habits that, again, our culture, our environment, uh, unfortunately, the schools, um, they've built up around us in such a way that's just literally encased us and had us sit down, sit still, stop moving. Completely not normal for the human form. We're, we're not built for that. It's not how we repair ourselves. It's not how we get better. Um, but yet, it has become uh, standard in our culture, and we've really got to work to uh, to change this. This is interesting because, you know, we hear you know move well, move more, but you're not even saying or sniffing at or hinting at exercise, aerobic function. You're just saying moving around, non-exercise activity. Like just as right. long as I'm not sitting. Right. Then I'm falling into this category that you're talking about. Now, do I have to be walking? Do you, are you advocating that I can never sit down during the day? Uh, that's a that's a good point. I, I really don't think that's what we're talking about. I think we're talking about a mix, you know, a balance. Um, so if you said, "Well, can I sit for an hour?" Now that I would say, "No, don't do that." I'd say, "Don't don't sit still for an hour." I'd also say, "Don't stand still for an hour," or you know, "Don't walk." at your office in your, on your treadmill for eight hours, right? You're going to have issues anytime you do anything to excess. Listen to your body, right? Listen to your body. What does your body need? Man, if you sit still in a typical chair for an hour, you're restless. You're, you're starting to, there's pains, things are tightening up. You're restricting blood flow. Yeah, but I can, back I can ignore that. I can just override that. You can. We've got to design environments where that's not normal to do, where we allow that to that physiological craving that's being, you know, transmitted through your brain, we got to create environments where you can listen to that. You can, you can respond to that. Yeah, Mom, I was, I was we're fidgeting not. by genetic design. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, a that's couple, right. a couple questions for you, doctor. Uh, first of all, just for our audience who's never heard of it, Kelly tossed out the phrase. Um, if you could define 
what non-exercise activity is. And then I've got another question after that. Sure. So typically we classify human movement into four groups, light, sedentary, moderate, and vigorous. And, you know, when you really look at the typical things that we do that uh, are, again, kind of puttering around the house, you know, checking on the garden, walking to the mailbox, uh, standing at the kitchen, you know, actively washing dishes, that kind of thing, not just pushing buttons on the dishwasher, by the way. Um, those types of things are that non-exercise activity thermogenesis. We're creating uh, you know, um, movement and activity that's burning calories at typically a higher rate than what it would if we were kind of sitting still watching TV or working at the computer, unfortunately, for two-thirds of American adults. Um, so this, this type of little bit of extra movement, little bit of extra activity just raises that bar, and it does so many good things for our physiology, for our biomarkers, and it's really, really critical that we incorporate more of that uh, if we can throw in the moderate and the vigorous, I mean, if we can afford to join a gym, if we can afford to, you know, be in an after-school program or a, or a, be on a sports team, or, man, that's awesome, right? That's just a like a huge bonus. Everybody knows that's going to take you yet again to another level. But if you want to avoid chronic disease, chronic illness, if you want to avoid pain, if you want to avoid the type of lifelong consequences, inf- including shortening of your life expectancy, you got to move. You got to move regularly, constantly throughout the day. Now, again, that's not walking 24 hours, obviously, uh, but you've got to be in motion. So this leads me to a quick story. We went on a 16-day pretty vigorous Grand Canyon trip with my dad. Uh, My dad, who is 75 years old, came along with us, and I think he may be cut from the same cloth as your grandmother or your wife's grandmother. But um, the entire trip- Wait, is is he single? Yeah, no, he unfortunately is not single, but you know, that could change by the time he All gets right. to his nineties, you know, Just checking, but, um, you know. but you know, everybody was so struck with how capable he was at 75 to be able to camp and do all these vigorous hikes and be on the river all day and out in and out of the sun. And, you know, I mean, everybody on the trip thought it was remarkable how functional he was. Right. And I asked him afterwards, you know, what he thought you know, was the reason for that. And he said exactly that, that he has always been moving. You know, he worked as a scientist for NASA for 35 years. So he certainly had a desk job and he had his moments in his day where he would, you know, sit and be doing like deep work in a sitting position. But he said he just was naturally, um, Oh, he always had a natural desire to be in constant motion. And, you know, he said of all the things he's done in his life and, and same as your grandmother, you know, he said his diet has been sort of a mixed bag and he loves donuts. So yeah. um, he really said and sort of agreed with what you're saying is that he just it was always moving and prioritized always moving. So um, I got a question for you. The second question I had is, and this seems to really tweak people on the internet, which is why I wanted to ask you. But mm. we read one time that... Um, Today, that being a sedentary office worker is actually the most dangerous job in America, more so than, you know, a lot of the sort of trade jobs. In musculoskeletal injuries. Yeah, musculoskeletal injuries. You know, there's a lot of the trades that everyone thinks of uh, as very dangerous. But, you know, what do you think about that? What's your opinion about that? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of tricky with statistics, right? I mean, Mark Twain said there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, I mean, I I think it's probably... uh, uh, it's accurate in some sense because almost two thirds of our workforce are sitting in an office, right? I mean, they're they're stuck behind some kind of screen, interacting with the screen. In fact, they're probably looking at one screen, typing, you know, to interface with that screen while holding their smartphone in the other hand. Um, so, you know, it's a real struggle um, for those folks to move. And unfortunately, the big killer in America, you know, is chronic disease. Um, and these are diseases of lifestyle. So they're diseases of diet and they're diseases of movement and physical activity. And so when we look at those, you know, this year for the first time, they'll overtake smoking. Smoking has been our number one killer with anywhere between 400 and even in years past over 500,000 deaths per year attributed to it. But now you're seeing obesity move up past smoking. So smoking rates have come down. We've got fewer and fewer people uh, who are smoking, but unfortunately we've got a real struggle with obesity. And that causes you to be more at risk if you're obese and you're in your desk job. Now, if, if you're lean and you're moving and you're doing a desk job, you're not necessarily at any greater uh, risk. This, this sets it up because so we're going to pivot into kids here in a second, but you know, is this just like your opinion, man? Like, how do you know 
this. I mean, what can you talk talk about what sure. your research has has sure. overturned? Because it, it's I want people to understand that when you, we saw some of the results of some of your long term multi year research, it is blowing our minds. Talk about how you ended up thinking about kids, and then some of your findings around what you've seen in the research around sedentary versus moving. Sure. So when you look at the the national scale, or even unfortunately now what I consider a pandemic with obesity at the international scale, um, it really is an epidemiological uh, evaluation. So what I mean by that is that you've, you've got to chase the numbers and the data and the prevalence rates, and you've got to understand the injury and the illness rates. And, you know, there are things that we consider uh, causative um, for instance, smoking and certain types of lung cancer we consider, you know, causative, but there are other things that are just correlated. And so cancer, um, cardiovascular disease, they are clearly correlated, strongly correlated in some cases, depending on what type with obesity. Now you, you have to be careful with the data. And so that's where you got to have a lot of smart folks that are working in epidemiology, making some of these interpretations, but yes, in general, uh, we are seeing these kind of trends come up. And this is where we go as scientists to find out what's the next area we need to work on. If, if something is causing or even just correlated with something else, can we break that chain? Can we get involved? So let me give you a good example from our popular culture today. Uh, last year, more than 50,000 Americans died from opioid overdose. That's, that's just terrible. Now, that's a cause, right? It is clearly a cause of their death. Well, what happens is when you start to peel the onion back a little bit, you say, well, why is this happening? Well, one of the easy go-tos is, well, there's people are getting prescription medications, they get addicted, okay? But why are they getting prescription medication? Why are they getting a prescription? Well, they're in pain. Oh, why are they in pain? Well, a lot of the reasons people are in pain have occupational illness at their core. They developed problems, a lot of them, pain in the back, especially is one of the most common body parts, from work. And surprisingly, a lot of those back pain cases are workers who are not heavy lifters. These aren't people out hauling grains of uh, feed, you know, 100-pound sacks of feed or something, or working on a construction crew. Those folks do get injured as well, but they also tend to be our industrial athletes, and they tend to be well-conditioned to the work they do. The people who are struggling with pain again, go back to that two-thirds of the workforce that are inactive, that are working in desk jobs, they have a higher prevalence rate. They're suffering from greater amounts of pain than the people who do the heavy work in our society. So we have a real mismatch in the information flow to the public about what's causing certain things and why people develop these conditions. But when you look at the rest of this group I'm talking about, the technology-induced inactivity, this is the, the, the things in our life that are either a screen or a chip or a machine that allows us to get by without having to do any type of physical work, those elements in our modern culture have really caused us to kind of lull us into this sense of, of uh, not having to move, not having to take physical activity seriously. And we love a lot of those things. They're wonderful inventions. They're great products. But at the same time, the perfect storm of all of them together at once has really been a struggle for us to, to keep ourselves physically active. Okay. So you end up seeing, sensing this pattern, recognizing that, you know, Hey, where do we begin this? Is this happening with kids? How did you get there? And will you talk about some of the work that you've been doing around getting to the bottom of this, you know, or sure. understanding this in the classroom environment? And some of your amazing mind blowing research yeah. findings as well. Well, sure. So I guess the, the, the fun part about this is that, uh, you know, it actually kind of came from the CDC. So the Centers for Disease Control are one of those groups in our government that closely monitors and tracks every year what's going on with obesity for all ages. They look at all kinds of different diseases. Most people on the call are probably uh, familiar with the CDC getting the first uh, phone call when, you know, Ebola comes to the comes to the shores or, you know, some kind of a tropical virus or vector-borne virus, you know, they get the phone call. But they also have a group that worries about these chronic disease conditions like obesity and type 2 diabetes and so forth. So they reached out uh, to us at Texas A&M and said, hey, we love what you're doing with adults. We love that you're trying to get these overweight and obese adults to move more. We think that's wonderful. We think it has promise. 
But what if we started a little earlier? What if we started with kids? And of course, you know, for most of us on the team here at AM, it was, it was, uh, well, okay. Um, children. Wow. That's, that's interesting. You know, do we have to talk to them? Do we have to work with them? You know, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, so, did you know we're scientists and engineers? So we're going to, ha- you're going to make us talk to kids. You know, it's like, can we get somebody else to do that part? You know? Uh, but anyway, we, it, it turned out we all really enjoyed it and we really loved the work, but we got into it initially because the CDC said, look, if you're 13 years old in the United States right now, if you're 13 and you're obese at 13, you have an 87% chance of being an obese adult. Like it, it's, it's, you know, bad. Like you don't have a great chance of turning that around at 13. Well, so you know, why can I just don't inter- we fix that before 13? Yeah, go ahead. Just interrupt you really quick. We uh, had a um, episode with Dr. Jose Greenspawn, who's a childhood obesity uh, physician. Mm-hmm. And he gave us the statistic that every child age three to 19 today has a 60% chance of being obese by the age 35. And that's irrespective of whether they're obese kids today. So that's just another mind boggling. It's just staggering. When you you look at data from back, I was born in the late 60s. And when when I was a kid coming up, you know, the the children born in the 60s in the U.S. had a one in 4,000 chance, one out of 4,000 of developing type 2 diabetes. And so, you know, if you think about it from an odd standpoint, uh, you know, picture Vegas, that, that, that's pretty good odds in my favor that I'm not going to be that one, right? Fast forward to today, and as recently as the last time we were together in Texas, uh, we were looking at around one out of three kids born today are looking at type 2 diabetes. Now, that's a significant change. What that statistic fails to do, though, is it fails to figure socioeconomics and also race. So there's a, there's a significant disparity in health amongst children with respect to race and, and even more importantly, socioeconomics. When you factor those things in, you can see numbers as high as two out of every three kids having type 2 diabetes in those groups. It, it's just economically, socially, it's morally untenable. Like we have got to fix this before it gets to that point. We we can't survive that. This is, I mean, think about an invading army attacking the United States and hamstringing two thirds of our population. We couldn't survive as a nation. We can't survive this if we don't fix it. We've got to fix this. It's critical. One of our good mates is a kid named uh, Greg Cook, who is a brilliant physio, and we're going to be talking with him. But he says, oftentimes we see this mismatch between organism and environment is that is it a toxic environment is it a to- is the organism doing something toxic in the, in a normal environment it really feels like this isn't necessarily someone's fault some like th- things have slowly inchwise changed underneath us and it's the aggregation of all this together that is set up and and we're seeing the diabetes we're seeing the obesity we're seeing these rates as a symptom of something else Right. And that was, I think, was so interesting about the work that you've done in the schools with a simple intervention of saying, hey, how about during this school day, we just reduce the amount of sedentary behavior? And you did that by switching from a classic sedentary still desk, which we all love to hate, right? <laughs> yeah. Chairs designed so they can be stacked by the, the custodial staff, right? Zero, right. zero interest in my body. And then you just flipped to a more dynamic workstation where kids could lean, they could perch, they could sit, they could squat, they could do whatever they needed to do. Can you talk about like just the, the, the logistics, what happened and what you found in this two-year cohort study? Sure. So when we first started that, we, we went into three different elementary schools. We had about 480 kids involved in the study, and we wanted to take half of them and for the next two years convert all of their classrooms that they were in at those three different elementary schools to these standing classrooms. So this is an environment created to be primarily standing. Uh, now there were stools available, they could get some support, they had alternative seating, and of course if you know anything about elementary school, they're they're in and out of classroom all day. Yeah, so they're, they're not standing like factory workers, oh, they're no. not right no, no, making no. widgets. Not at all. So very dynamic, but we allowed them at least during that typical kind of classroom time to be up and for the classroom to be up. And uh, wow, what a difference maker. So, 
you know, when we started looking at the little impacts, we, we did see, for instance, more standing time. Well, that's interesting. And, and you can kind of say, okay, that, that's fun. What does that do for you? Well, it, it's not about standing, right? It's about movement. So we also saw a couple thousand extra steps per day. And that's a big deal. And we saw that in the high schools as well when we converted entire high schools. So picking up a couple thousand extra steps, you know, five extra miles of emulation a week for a lot of high school students, that was dramatic. It was really significant. In fact, some of the kids, it was a doubling in how much they were ambulating in one week, which is a real shame. Uh, that's like a whole other podcast, right? Yeah. Um, but so we, we started on this two-year elementary uh, process, getting these kids uh, the equipment they needed. And we, we decided early on, there's, there's a type of, uh, of research that's kind of, it's considered naturalistic. So one of the things you do when you do a naturalistic study is you go into the, the real setting. You get out of the laboratory, you go in a real environment. And this is the hard part for researchers. You can't contrive it. So that means, for instance, I can't have Kelly and Juliet show up on Friday and do a big, you know, uh, school campaign to get everybody excited about what it is I'm trying to get them to do. Because once you guys leave, everybody wants to do it. Well, then it's not really an experiment anymore because I don't have 100,000 Kelly and Julia Starrett's to drop off in every school in America, <laughs> right? So I wish I did because then we'd be good and we could not have this yeah. podcast because we'd have solved the problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but what we did was we said, you know what, we're just, gonna, we're just literally going to drop the furniture off. We're going to make the, the new environment while the kids are gone at break. And when the kids and the teachers come back, there's going to be like this new stuff. And let's step back. <laughs> Surprise. Let's yeah. yeah, let's like hide in the corner, right? And let's see how it goes. Now, of course, we put sophisticated wearable sensors on them and we tracked them and we trended them and we looked at what was happening. But I think more important than all the daily uh, and weekly data we picked up for two years on these kids was the uh, parents and teachers and children's feedback on how it was working and then probably the the biggest thing, you know, I mean, you guys know that the tail of the tape, right? At the end of the two years, hey, I, I don't care about your calorie expenditure. I don't care about your, you know, touchy-feely comfort, my body, my my flexibility, my core strength, blah, blah, blah. Hey, I, where am I out on the BMI scale? What happened to my, my trajectory on that BMI scale we were talking about where kids are much more likely to end up as obese adults. How are they doing on that? Because we're all on an upward trajectory, right? That that slope of that line, unfortunately, is not flat. And by the way, when you're a kid, it's supposed to have a slope. You're supposed to get bigger and taller every year. So your BMI is going to go up. But you're not supposed to have that trajectory too steep. So what we found after two years was the tra trajectory on that scale for those kids who were in the standing classrooms was reduced. The slope went down. Now, the kids in the in the typical uh, normal American seated classrooms, their trajectory went up just like it normally does every year, like it's supposed to and, and like we see all over the country. But we altered, we brought down, uh, it was actually a negative change in that trajectory. And that that's really dramatic. That's like you don't see that typically in research. You, you get a lot of research studies out there that you read about, a lot of them that are hyped in the press that say, yeah, we followed these kids for two whole weeks and we... We watched and we counted how many times they did a jumping jack and it was seven more times than the other group of kids. And you're like, oh, great. More jumping Two jacks weeks. must be good for you, right? Nothing about outcomes, nothing about health, nothing about things that indicate health. And so it's really tough when you do this over long periods of time, these longitudinal studies. But I think that was a breakthrough moment. And I think also the cognitive where we did brain scans on the kid. Um, and we had the children in the classrooms. We had them doing uh, cognitive evaluation on the computers. We tracked them over a year after introducing the standing desks. And we saw a cognitive improvement that isn't normal. It's not tied to uh, aging or anything like that. It's not tied to their academics. These are changes in the brain, how much uh, oxygenated hemoglobin flows through the brain and how well they're able to concentrate and focus and dial into their work. We, we saw measurable differences, 7 to 15%, depending on the measure. And again, that's dramatic. That's an eye-opener, right? That's that's the kind of thing that scientists will say, ah, right, ah, whoa, okay, what? I, tell me that again. So it, it's really some of these moments that we said, okay, are, are we? Do, is there any problem? Like, are we hurting anybody? Are we, is there any, causing any trouble, right? We don't want, we got no child left behind. We don't leave any child behind. Is there any problem here? Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about this intervention was, hey, it's for everybody right? The kids who are, are more likely to become obese, the kids who are already starting out maybe a little bit overweight, 
they actually get the most bang for the buck, right? They get the biggest benefit out of this. Kids who are normal, healthy weight and are pretty active and are moving around, this doesn't alter their, their world much. It doesn't change much for them. But for the other children, it really impacted their focus and attention, their cognition. It really impacted their trajectory that they were on for their BMI, which of course their slopes are a little bit steeper as they grow and go. So big, big, uh, big opportunity for kids here to move more. And just to make one quick note, because I know Kelly has a question, but for those kids where it didn't have a, an impact, there was also no negative for those kids, right? And in fact, there may Absolutely. even be some ancillary positives. Like when I spoke to some kids at our all-standing school, I asked them what they felt about the standing desk. You know, there were kids said the most adorable things, but they said, you know, things like, wow, you know, when I'm standing, I just feel more happy. And some you just sort of it, very endearing things like that. But, you know, I think it's an important point to make that it's probably great for all kids. It's really great for a certain cohort of kids. And even if it's not great for all kids, it certainly doesn't harm any kids. <laughs> That's right. Well, and I, I have had complaints, so I have to, you know, be full disclosure here. Right. I, I had a kid in high school one time pull me aside and he said, uh, hey, man you the professor that's doing this stuff oh. to us? And I said, I said, well, it depends on what you say next, right? And uh, he said, yeah. He said, I hate these things, man. I said, well, why is that? And he said, because I can't sleep anymore at my desk. <laughs> we, and I said, well, okay. You're like, you're like that's I, a complaint I, 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 I will you. take. You know? Okay, so we – Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going I'm to take that. You've yeah, got this that. intervention that seems to be almost like a silver bullet. It's It runs itself – Kids, it doesn't doesn't necessarily make kids worse. There's a natural benefit. It, it it's like a it works as the way humans work. But the teacher's the functional unit here of change. Right. So right. you ran these kids through this program for a couple of years. So you, you followed these schools, and so you followed the kids up. What happens when you took the desks away from the teachers who had had it? Yeah, the teachers. Uh, it was interesting because when we first did the pilot. We had five classrooms and we went in after the pilot and kind of told the teachers at the end of the school year, all right, well, thank you for playing nice with us. We're done and we're going to take our toys and go home. And and I literally had a teacher tell me, you will pry these desks from my cold, dead hands. You're not getting them. <laughs> and she said, you know, this has been a game changer for me. And in, in 15 years of teaching, I've never had anything that impacted my classroom management like these desks. I, I am able to teach more, longer, better, right? I have fewer distractions. I have fewer children I have to correct and, and try to rope in and get them to sit down and sit still and be quiet. And it, it's, it's working. Now, her complaint, she was a little bit upset with me too. So I, I get this everywhere. She said, listen, I'm a little angry though because I had to go back and develop new lessons plans because I've never gotten through all of my lessons plans in a year. Now I've had to go back oh, and develop new lessons. Oh, do more math, more math. More math. More kid, kids are learning more stuff. It's, it's ter terrible. terrible. This is Stop terrible. this. This is Stop terrible. This. Up the madness. Uh, doctor, I we get this question a lot, and I'm wondering um, if you have any research or know about any research out there um, about whether standing desks have a positive impact on kids with attention disorders or behavior issues. Yeah, that's a great question. And we, we have run some studies in the lab. We've got one large study pending uh, that's under review right now to do more work in the schools on this. This is a really big area for pediatricians and, of course, for parents who have children uh, with these different diagnoses, particularly the parents who require uh, their children require some sort of medication. So the big kind of question that we're asking is, can we reduce or eliminate some of these medications? Uh, no one in the medical community feels that's a, you know, a, a, a bad goal, right? Everybody wants to see that happen. That's a, that's a great and noble goal. Can we achieve the same results that the drugs uh, achieve in the classroom as far as them being able to learn more, stay focused, stay on task uh, without the medications. And so if in fact we can, we can do that, we'll, we'll, we'll let everyone know. The lab studies were, were very promising. Uh, we ran uh, ADHD kids against what I guess we would call non-diagnosed kids. And we had them do tasks both seated and standing on the computer for a few hours. And we were able to monitor those tasks. But while they were doing the tasks, they were wearing that functional near-infrared spectroscopy, which is the, the laser uh, beam being shot through the brain, and we're picking up that oxygenated hemoglobin. So we could see the prefrontal cortex uh, changing blood flow 
as a result to the whole body movement of just getting up, just getting out of your chair. And what was cool, I thought, was that the seated uh, non-diagnosed children, they didn't have any real big uh, change when they moved to standing. They performed at still good, good levels, acceptable levels, normal levels. But the children who had the ADHD, they increased their performance when they got out of the chair. And what's cool about that is it's one of those, you know, kind of do no harm, right? We're not hurting the kids who don't have trouble focusing, but we're helping the kids who do. And I just love that, right? I mean, I, I think that's the way we got to try to approach these things. What can we do for the ones that are struggling with a certain setup? Because we've set it up. We've gamed the system in favor of what I would say is about a half to maybe 50, 55 or 60% of the population. We've gamed it for them. So they're, they're good. They, they're, everything's fine. They do well. But the other 40%, man, it's a struggle. And why wouldn't we set up an environment where they can all do well? That just seems logical to me. Well, you know, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm reminded of this great study that I probably mentioned before. Uh, David Epstein wrote a wonderful book called The Sports Gene. And in it, he talks about that there is a genetic drive to move. There's a component. And that's variable. But some kids move and drive and they are fidget and they need to move and and those those genetic drives are innate and they're they're variable but with the kids when you turn that dial up man they just fidget and wobble and just need to kind of be in constant motion he pointed yes. out that they discovered this in mice and that they saw that some mice were who were running most most mice would run about a mile a day that was like free free rain mouse ran in the in the circle wheel a mile a day. And then they saw some mice that were running three miles a day. And they were like, Ooh, what's up with these mice? So they, they got those mice together, made a love connection. And in a couple generations, they had mice that ran seven miles a day. Just right. They just, they were like, wow, super movers. And then they give the mice Ritalin and they moved one mile a day. And if they didn't give the mice a chance to <laughs> move around, they fought each other and freaked right. out. And I was like, wait a minute. I remember that feeling like as like a young boy. Yeah, my cousins and I like yes. destroy each other. So, you know, what's interesting is that you have talked to us about their, the fact that, hey, it's do no harm, but it may not even just be about a, an intervention that prevents something. But this may be a sneaky intervention to improve function of the human being. Because you, you said that like our brains are, are more effective or we pay more attention. Is this true for adults? Because I think I remember a study about a call center. Would you, can you relay that to us? Absolutely. So one of the things we wanted to do on the, on the adult side was try to find an environment of office workers where we could get objective data about performance. That's really hard to do. Um, in any kind of an environment where people are, are what we consider office workers, because, um, you know, how do you measure, right, what that output is? Well, it turns out in call centers, it's already measured. They have very clear, very data-driven, objective metrics that say in the course of a day, um, one person puts out X number of, of files. Maybe they are selling something, a product or a service. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a tally. Right. And there's a score sheet. And it's clear that Juliet smoked Kelly, by the way, and sold a lot yes. more. Right. In yes. everything. Yes. Crushed him. So, you know, it's awesome because at the end of the day, we can look at those numbers. So that's a that's kind of a unique environment for us. It's almost sort of that laboratory-esque type environment for us to get out in the field with with again, real workers, all ages, genders, types, shapes, sizes, everything. The normal mix you get in a work environment that you don't get when you run a, a lab study on a college campus with 21 year olds. Um, so we, we went out to the field and we went out to a call center. We got 150 workers and we set them up for six months. We put standing desks in and again, we, we did it naturalistic. We just, we just kind of backed away. We're like, Oh, there, there's new stuff. There it is. You know, it goes up and down. You can stand at it. You know, there you go. And we, we, we walked away and we monitored with wearables. We monitored through the computer. We monitored what was happening with the performance. And we saw over 40% greater productivity in the workers who received Whoa. the standing desk. That means that's like money, did. right? Like the thing that matters it's most, that my kids do better in school, that they, they come home happier, that they sleep better. And in yeah. business, yeah. it's about money. Yeah, so, so what, what did that translate yes. to 40% more productivity in dollars? 
Yeah. So it's millions of dollars. And if you can imagine when people do uh, ROI calculations for large corporations, it's not uncommon if you're going to buy a big piece of equipment. Let's say it's a you know million dollar piece of equipment. If you can pay for that thing in a year or two, man, you're a hero. That, that's a that's a good you'll take that deal. That's a good investment. Right. So if, imagine a situation where you could buy equipment for your employees and the productivity gains they get would pay for that equipment in a few days. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't, you don't run into that. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, we went back as the senior researchers, the statisticians, the professors, you know, on the study and said, whoa, 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 <laughs> something's wrong here. This can't be right. These numbers can't be right. This data can't be right. I mean, we really got into These the standing desks are made of business. amphetamines. Like what, like what's up, right? I mean, cause you know, it can't be well, and that's one of the reasons why we ran the study for six months, because there is an effect. If, if I go into a typical office and I, I approach someone and say, hey, uh, by the way, I, I bought you this new you know, foam cushion for you to lean back on, and it's going to help you feel better and be more productive. And I just want you to know we care about you. We value you as an employee. I'll see a bump in their productivity like the next day and probably maybe even for a week or two. Relief effects. But then after... Yeah. About three, yeah. About three weeks later, it's like, yeah, okay, they don't love me anymore. It's over. <laughs> it's done, right? And they've forgotten about that nice piece of foam I put back there. Now, did the foam really do anything? Probably not. But if you sustain behavioral change that produces productivity outcomes, if you sustain those for six months or a year or more, you, you've you've got something. That that's a real deal there. That's different. So you're saying that having standing desks in your workplace is actually a competitive advantage. No, no, not necessarily. Having an environment that's conducive yes. to the to, conditions to, of the human being. Yes. Right. That's the way we're thinking yeah. about. Because suddenly you take this this idea of it's not it's not necessarily that we're sitting versus standing. It's that we're moving versus right. not moving, or we have movement options, or there's more movement. Right. Which means it, it is the it is the built environment. It's yeah. not down to the the workstation that is probably one piece of it but you got to go to the building level the grounds the community you gotta you gotta kind of again just take that human from the time they wake up after hopefully a good solid seven to eight hours of good sleep Um, but you got to take that human through the next you know 18 hours and where are they at what touches them what do they interact with what what physical activities are they doing how did they get from here to there right you got to do that full look to alter what's going on today. It, it, it certainly won't be one thing. It won't be in one place. It won't just be about our transportation or the way we get to work or the, the thing we do at our desk. Or it, it, It's, it's going to be all of it. I mean, we've really got to rethink this. I remember a study that showed that smokers were healthier in a workplace environment than non-smokers because they had to get it from their desk and, and go, go out and, and go smoke. outside. And the further yeah. you put that smoking section, the better off those people are. Isn't that, is right. that, am I right in remembering that? No, you're right. Unfortunately, there was a, there were, it's called a protective effect. So there was a protective effect uh, that came into play around that. And so, you know, ultimately, unfortunately, uh, you know, smoking wins, uh, you know, the negative val- battle on the long run. But yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, we'll go ahead and start that here at Texas A&M. We'll put all of the uh, restrooms about three miles away. <laughs> and, uh, we, we, we won't allow you to take your car to them. You'll have we to don't call that a win-win. We call that a win-lose. So so what's interesting is that I'm starting to hear, and, and I'm playing dumb a little bit, obviously, because I'm so deep nerd about this. But movement isn't just about the brain, too. You're signaling when we stand and, and load our bones, when we load the physiology, that there is a gigantic feedback loop and some research that I remember you telling me about really supports that it's not just about dumb activity, but actually loading my, my long bones changes the system. Right. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, we've understood the leptin cycle and how it informs satiety and hunger for leptin years. Leptin is a hormone, right? Well, correct. Well understood, well followed. Everybody kind of gets it. And, and really again, kind of rare with scientists, right? We agree that, yes, this is one of the main triggers and the best understood triggers to tell you, I, I need to eat more. I'm hungry. I need, I've got to consume some more calories, right? So when that is broken, it's not good because we eat more than we need to, to function and to move and to digest food and to stay warm and so forth. So that's a problem. 
But one of the things that we just recently discovered as late as fall of 17 was that there's also some things in our long bones called gravitostats. And gravitostats are there to inform our brains about what's happening with the weight load, the weight bearing, how much force, downward force is in our long bones. And that, I mean, really, that is one of those, whoa, what? what what's, what's happening here? It's, it's such a significant finding because it means that when we don't load the long bones, just imagine your brain is sitting up on top of your shoulders there waiting to get a little bit of information about how's your weight doing? How much do I weigh on this earth? What's the effect of being in this 1G environment? Where, where, where's my body poundage at today? Your brain is waiting for that signal. And when it gets that signal, it's going to say, oh, well, gosh, you, you got to eat some more calories. You're, you're getting, getting kind of thin there, right? Or, oh, whoa, okay, you're, you're good. You're good. We're going to maintain a healthy weight right where you're at. You're fine. Maybe go do a little more movement, and then we'll, we'll have this conversation again between the long bones and the brain about having to consume some more calories. When you sit all day and you don't ambulate, you don't move, and you don't load those long bones, that feedback loop is gone. It, it, the signal doesn't get through the brain. So the brain, unfortunately, defaults to what we now understand is sort of preservation of the species. It's, it's a broken circuit. But you know, your brain says, well, I guess I better eat some more in case there's a famine, right? In case things get lean around here and HEB or, you know, whatever your grocery store is, isn't open, I better hurry up and get a few more calories packed in. I mean, what, what, what happens if the, the creeks rise, right? So it's really critical um, that we have that feedback loop to help that leptin cycle regulate that hunger and satiety that goes on every day in our bodies. That just, I remember you telling me about that study and it just blew my mind. So, doctor, we are trying to give practical advice to parents in particular, but I think everybody in these this this season of the ready state. And so, I guess my next next question is: What are let's say three or however many number of things that you want to come up with that parents could do to sort of combat their sedentary habits with their kids? And understanding, of course, that while we are chipping away at uh, converting classrooms from sitting to standing, it, uh, it, it's a slow process. So most, most kids don't have access to that. So, you know, assuming that most kids can't be standing at school, what would you recommend parents do at home to sort of, you know, combat their sedentariness and, and also even for adults? I mean, I'd love to know both just sort of some general, mm -hmm. general recommendations from you. Well, I, I don't know how much feedback you're going to get in writing on this, but these will these will be fighting words for some folks. But I'm <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and put it out there since you asked me. So, um, I think first thing you got to do is you you, you got to get those kids outside. Um, the connection uh, for children to nature is, is absolutely vital. It's you know it's how they develop their balance. It's how they develop their core. They have got to fall down. They got to get you know skin knees. They 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 need to run. They need to tumble, they need to skip, they need to jump, they need to hop, they need to climb. Um, they've they've got to be able to do a lot of these things. And then what happens is that connection to the brain, the development that occurs as a result of them being out of your sight. I know that's really shocking and scary to some parents, but um, you've got to let them out of your sight for more than a millisecond. Uh, and this is going to be the really hard part. You got you to get them off the screens. Um, I mean, it sounds oversimplified, but... The screen time right now it, it has become the great American babysitter. And what's really troubling, I think, is that we are, we are running the largest human study in the history of mankind right now on young children with these screens. And basically what we're doing is we're finding out how many bad things can we cause in their life with their mental and physical health for the next 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years by exposing them to this much screen time when they're young. And I'm telling you, we're not going to know the answer for 40 or 50 years. But today, speaking of epidemiological data, we're already seeing the numbers. If you look at the, the data on health and obesity, if you look at the you know, eight-year-olds that are developing type 2 diabetes, if you look at the um, numbers of anxiety, the 50% increase in uh, teen suicides in the last decade, it's just staggering. So something has changed, right? Something has occurred. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we as a nation have tackled terrible, debilitating childhood diseases like polio, 
I mean, we rallied a nation. We created a vaccine. We, we, we stopped polio in its tracks. But if you look at the number of kids that, that contracted polio compared to the number of kids that are suffering from a lot of the, the, the conditions we're talking about, it, it just pales in comparison. Now, polio is much more obvious, right? It's much more noticeable. We see it. It's clear what's happening. We understand it. These other things I'm talking about, they are that that frog in the pot of water on the on the stove, right? You know, toss them in when it's cold. They sit there. You turn the heat up slowly. They'll boil. Throw them in boiling water. They'll jump right out. I mean, we we are a nation right now of frogs in this situation, and it, it's not one person or one evil conspiracy or something doing this. It, it's just again our culture, and we have as parents, I think, a responsibility to break ranks the culture if we want to really help our kids um, to miss out on some of this big grand experiment that's happening right now well that's so, cheerful so getting outside <laughs> and off screens i mean I, you know if, this so, podcast if, brought to you by armageddon <laughs> i i will say though that oh, um man. to me that sounds it, it makes perfect sense and does not sound unreasonable so and it's, it's cheap, amazing right? that we've I mean, gotten it, to a point where the what what you said there could actually be fighting words in the internet world Yes. Yes, it is. And I understand that. And, you know, we, we have the same struggle when we talk to uh, parents about their children at all ages, including even here on campus, you know, when they're supposed to be dropping their children off uh, to go to what kindergarten. Um, we still have that same exact scenario. Get whatever that image is in your mind of parents dropping off an 18 year old to college. And the thing that's so bizarre is that we don't realize that the love, clear love we feel for our children by doing some of these things is actually setting them up for failure in the future. And so we, we have to speak the truth. We've got to talk about this stuff. We've got to let parents know. We've got to help them understand. And again, we've got to give them courage to face some of the, the shaming, the parent shaming um, that occurs when you allow your kid to uh, get a skin knee or, you know, a, a bump or a bruise or something. So. so question for you, I, I've noticed in the various agencies or people that recommend um, screen time amounts, it seems like the recommended screen time keeps going up while the minimum age is going down. Do you have, have you yes. seen that? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing the same trends. Um, it, it is, it is pervasive, and one of the one of the struggles, one of the challenges, is that we are now educating our children through many different types of screens. We're using them to inform them. So, um, you know, there's a there's a big debate going on right now about uh, the use of technology and this exact thing you're talking about. Because if I take the extreme, if I'm the parent who never allows my child to see an iPad or touch a cell phone or smartphone, uh, when they become, you know, 18 years old and go off to college, can they survive? Can they function in college? Heck, can they, can they function in seventh grade? I mean, it's, it's the way we receive information. It's the way we communicate. Um, it's how we do work. And so cutting off children and, you know, eliminating those things from their lives that are, they are literally our tools, right? They're the tools of our trade now. I think that would also be problematic for them in society. So we, we've got to find a balance. Um, but, you know, one of the things we've been talking about on this whole show is if you got to do that, if you are an office worker, if you have to be a student in school, how do you build back in some of the movement? How do you transform some of the ways that we do this? We, we tend to take so many of these things at face value and just say, well, I guess if I work at a computer, the only way to work at a computer is while sitting. Turns out that's not true. Right. So we have to just challenge some of those norms that are coming up in our society. And we have to be careful about what gets dropped off on our desk uh, tomorrow by very well-meaning, very professional, uh, you know, IT people who they got the latest model. It's the next greatest thing and it's going to be awesome. All you have to do is talk to it. Right. And it does your bidding. And, you know, we tried that a few years ago and, and we started having people developing uh, cumulative trauma of the voice box. They're talking too much. You know, any overuse, misuse, abuse, out of position, out of alignment, too much force, too much frequency, in a bad posture, we create problems for the, for the human. And so we just have to be true to a lot of those principles and figure out how to do these things we, we need 
and we have to work with and interact with in a way that doesn't harm us. And we're not, we're not there yet. We're, we're struggling with this. It's, it's a tough spot. So I have this grained schema. I'm starting to get a bigger picture of the 30,000 foot view. And a lot of these pieces start to make that, make that, you know, picture where you, it's made up of lots and lots of pictures and you look back and it's a sailboat. Right. And, uh, but as a parent, it can be as easy as let's walk more, let's get outside and right. play more. It doesn't, it just doesn't have to be the, the great disruptor. This doesn't, you know, I don't have That's to right. fear sitting. What I want to say is how can I engage in behaviors with my family that get us to be more human, which starts with things like walking a little bit more, playing a little bit more. Yeah. When my boys were young, I have three sons. Um, they used to really get upset whenever dad had to drive them to school. And the reason was that my sweet wife would drive them right up to the front door and she'd wait in line with 3000 other parents to fight for that, you know, front circle drive drop off point where the six crossing guards and five police officers and, you know, fire trucks and emergency vehicles and all were there in case the kid tripped getting out of the car. Um, but what I would do is I would pull into the neighborhood behind the school, you know, about eight blocks away and I'd say, get out. <laughs> right. And they say, well, dad, what do you mean? I say, well, just if the school, I can see the flagpole over there, you know, it's only a half mile away. Get out. <laughs> well, uh, but, uh, and I said, no, you need to walk. It's good for you. You know, I'll see you after school. Right. I love you. I care about you, but get out. Yes. Well, you're showing your love. <laughs> make, make yes. your this is going to hurt me more yeah. than it hurts it's you. better for you. Yeah. There, yeah, yeah, it's just <laughs> there was actually. You hope, you hope nobody's videotaping or taking. Uh, there pictures, was actually a, there, there was actually a principal at a school in Sweden who just closed, you know, fenced off the parking lot and just said, you're literally not what? allowed to drive to school anymore. I mean, if we did that here at our elementary and middle school, it would be, I mean, talk about Armageddon, like people would tweak yeah. Yeah, you would, you would. You guys would show up on the news. That's for sure. Comma. Now again. Canada did that. They built a school with a drop-off parking area for, and this was cool: parents, teachers, and of course students. And it was about a mile uh, from the school. Now you know that that region of their country allowed for that geographically and safety-wise, and you know land and all that kind of thing. But they had a a wonderful unencumbered no no crosswalks no you know you don't have to worry about getting across the street or something with with cars but you had a mile walk to get to school both ways everybody got it every everybody who could right everybody who's able-bodied uh got that walk in if if mom dad whoever really felt the need to walk that 11th grader to the front door of the high school <laughs> while holding their hand um you laugh we shouldn't laugh it's a true thing um then they could still do it but guess what now, mom or grandma, right? They got a mile walk each way. That's awesome for our society, for our culture. Those kind of interventions, again, they're they're just absolutely. You're saying critical. what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Amen. You know, no, um, in the UK, there is this great program called the Daily Mile, and all they did was say, "Hey, we're just going to walk a mile a day." And you kids could walk, they could run, they just went out and they saw massive behavior changes. Well, look, this is Pandora's box. You. Yes. I don't know if I don't know if it's because you live in Texas, if you have children, but you can sp like you know lay out a yarn, tell a good story, and I literally I'm listening. I'm like, what? And then what happened? And then the kids. Um, where can we find about you or some of the research? Or if I'm interested in what you're doing, where, where would I go next? How? Where do I begin this conversation with you? So if you if you look up Texas A&M University and the Ergonomics Center, the the research will be uh, connected and correlated there. Of course, if you're interested more in the children than the adults, um, the Stand Up Kids you know out outlet is a is a great option. Um, you know, research connections there, but um, those would be the two easiest ones. And I think you know we'll add to the show notes at least a couple of your kids studies, especially the uh, links to them, especially the BMI one, which is just so massive. So um, we'll just right. include some of the mission critical ones in our show notes as well. And in full transparency, right. we uh, we have a professional association with Dr. Mark Bennett through of not only Veridesk, but also he is a uh, one of our advisors on our standupkids.org uh, nonprofit. So just right. so that everyone knows, we like each other, but also yes. we do some work together. Well, we are so grateful yet again for you um, taking your time to tell us all of this amazing information plus advice for all, which is so helpful. I'm going to go outside and go for a walk with my shirt off. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you so much, doctor. All right. And climb that's, a tree. That's climb right. That's right. Too. Get that. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Y'all take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under mobilitywad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it!